the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I know during the campaign cycle here, we've heard a lot made about making America great again. But my first guest, I think, would argue that what really challenges us is not simply a notion of making America great again. And I'm not sure what that means, nor what that process is. But I can tell you this. If we take into consideration the observations of de Tocqueville back a century plus ago into America and her greatness at that time, let me suggest that perhaps the greater issue at foot here, the bigger challenge that is faced by this nation today is not an effort toward making America great again, but rather making America righteous again. If we can make America righteous again, then the making of America great again will naturally flow. Our first guest is the editor of First Things, an ecumenical Christian journal based out of New York City. He is a theologian, has a Ph.D. in religious ethics from Yale University, and the author of a brand new book just released by our friends at Regnery Publishing called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Dr. R.R. Reno, great to have you on the program. It's good to be with you, Craig. What about this, this idea? I mean, that making America great again, I mean, it's, that's a noble idea, but that seems to kind of be the end game. It really doesn't give us any insight in terms of what is the game plan to take us there. Well, not just that, but great. I mean, great presumably is more than just richer, right? I mean, we have to have some noble ideal to which we're striving if, it, if the greatness is to be more than just more stuff. Um, so we need to have some vision in mind of what it means to have to have a great society, and and I, in my book I try to make a case that we need to have some transcendent orientation as a people, and that in our history that transcendent orientation has been provided by Christianity, and so we need to renew or uh, I use the term resurrect the Christian character of our society if we're going to get out of the troubled state that we're in. And of course, the irony is um, many of the great observers and thinkers out there that have pondered America and her quote-unquote greatness down through um, the last couple of centuries have, yes, pointed to uh, industrialization and our economic proudness, things of this sort. But they've also highlighted quite vigorously America's sense of compassion and integrity, uh, our, our work ethic, hard work, responsibility, all of these ideas that are really the underpinnings of, I think, what is the ultimate um, product of this sense of greatness, and that is that from our sense of compassion and in hard work and integrity and responsibility and all these other deals and, and embracing of freedom and all that that means flows the end result or the benefit of economic greatness. But absent all of these other points that I just mentioned, I have to wonder if economic greatness is even possible anymore. <laughs> no, you're quite right. I mean, you mentioned Alexis de Tocqueville at the outset, and he was very worried about the way in which a democratic culture 
tends towards mediocrity, and not just mediocrity, but a kind of license and um, you know a lack of a lack of vigor. And maybe maybe we're kind of experiencing that today. But he recognized that in the United States, Christianity provided countervailing force. It tended to unify people who are otherwise, you know, um, divided in an individualistic society like ours. It tended to uh, organize people towards sort of the common good. And as you said, it it generates um, an imperative to lift up, to defend the weak and lift up the poor. And so that's an important part of any healthy society is that we see that we're all in it together and that, uh, but for the grace of God, go I. So that that helps us recognize that, you know, our neighbor who maybe is not doing so well uh, needs a helping hand. Um, and, you know, too much we live in a society that's very now dominated by a kind of meritocracy. And there's good aspects of that. You know, it means that talented people can succeed in our society. But the downside is the tendency to think that achievement is the be-all and end-all of life. And it can make people look up, you know, and not down. Um, and and we, as Christians, you know, we Jesus tells us, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner. So we're urged to look down to the people who are below us, not just up to the people who can pull us higher. I wonder, you use the word unity. Is it as much striving toward making America unified or maybe a deeper, greater sense of solidarity? And I ask that question, Doctor, because we live in a pluralistic society. We've always had differing religious views, certainly differing political parties. There were times throughout American history when there was much that might have divided us in the sense of presenting challenges or roadblocks to unity, and yet we were able somehow to find a sense of solidarity. I I think, for example, of World War II. Well, World War II was a battle that was won not by Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or Protestants or Catholics or Jews. It was a war that was won by Americans because we found Mm -hmm. a common enemy that gave us a sense of solidarity. Right. Well, hopefully we can find that we don't need an enemy. I mean, certainly in times of trial, you know, we find our common ground. But, you know, in some ways, we're, aren't we kind of in a time of trial in our country right now? You know, the economic changes of our society over the last generations have put a tremendous amount of stress on the social contract. Um, we see kind of an upsurge in racial tensions in spite of all the progress of the last two generations. And so there's some, you know, I think that the, this current electoral cycle and the amount of anti-establishment votes, whether it's for Sanders or Trump, does suggest our society is unhappy and that uh, we need to um, we need to join together in order to solve our problems as a country. And, and so you're, I think you're right. I mean, in the book, one of the things that I talk about is the false god of diversity. And I mean, it makes some sense at one level. You can't you can't be united with people that you're not present to, and so it makes some sense to think about. Well, wait a minute. Am I really present to my fellow citizens? You know, to people from different backgrounds. But ultimately, diversity is a means to an end, which is solidarity or unity. And we've lost sight of that. We we make diversity an end in itself, as if having a you know a menu of different folks somehow makes a society one. It doesn't. 
uh, we have to be shoulder to shoulder, striving towards a common end in order to be a to be a united society. Have we of recent generations, then, Doctor, in your opinion, maybe um, built an idol, made ideology of multiculturalism in a sense, then, that leaves us with no shared common culture? I mean, I'm thinking that if we have no common ground upon which we can build together because we spend more time elevating or celebrating the difference as opposed to the things that we have in common, that trying to find that common ground upon which then we can move forward as a people, as a nation, becomes very troubling and difficult, doesn't it? I think that's quite right. And, you know, I've become kind of bitter over the last few years about multiculturalism. You know, I travel around and you chat to people, ordinary Americans from many different backgrounds. You know, most of them are very proud to be American and and they feel a sense of common purpose. You know, there's there are plenty of people who died in Iraq from all kinds of different backgrounds. And and I resent the fact that our leadership class feeds young kids in high school this sort of multicultural ideology that denies them a vocabulary to talk about their shared love of our country. Uh, and I, I think that the leadership class, I'm a little bit, I'm getting more and more cynical. I think that the leadership class does that in part, maybe unwittingly, because uh, if you deny, if you deny ordinary people a kind of shared focal point of unity, then they'll never challenge you in your position of leadership, right? You atomize people, you deracinate them, you disorient them, you 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 sow grievance, and this this will this will prevent people from from ordinary people from unifying to you know take charge of their own country. And I think you see a little protest. We're in the midst of a protest against that whole process, aren't we? Absolutely. So, and of course, it's the old adage, you know, divide and conquer. And we know certainly from a from a spiritual standpoint, the enemy of our souls seeks to do just that. And if uh, Satan can be about the business of dividing us, it is very easy then to find that a house that is divided against itself, what does Scripture tell us? Well, that house will fall. If you've just joined us, our visit today with Dr. R.R. Reno. The book is called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. We'll get to the meaning of that title in a moment. also want to spend a bit of time looking at observations made by a number of theologians, one of my favorites, Dr. Uh, the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who give warnings about the end result of what it means to live in a uh, postmodern or more specifically put post-Christian society. Is that where we find ourselves today? And how can we return back to our Christian roots? We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dr. R.R. Reno as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, 20 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. We're visiting today with best-selling author Dr. R.R. Reno. He is the author of a new book called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. And Dr. Reno, I'm wondering, as we look at this uh, disarray in which we find our society in. It's more than just a sense of racial disunity. There's political disunity taking place. I think a growing sense of of lack of satisfaction, probably a large part of that is because we've distorted the definition of the American dream, and we'll talk about that in a bit, too. But I'm wondering how much of this is simply reaping what Francis Schaeffer warned we were sowing, and that is that we find ourselves distinctly in the middle of postmodern or a post-Christian society. Well, 
Oh, I think he was far-seeing in this regard. Um, he, he recognized that that you know postmodernism, you know, is a is a project that that um, I mean, I think largely is, should be defined as an attempt an attempt to live in a meaningless universe by giving your own life meaning through some sort of act of will that I can choose the meaning for my life. But, you know, it's funny. People are smart enough to know that they don't have the power to give their life meaning. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if I'm a God to myself, then, you know, if you really get your mind around it, you go, nah, nah, that's not going to work. And so I think that's one reason you see, you see some of the dissatisfaction out there is that our current cultural regime doesn't really give people much to believe. Uh, we, we offer people what I think are the sort of small gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. And that's what our society revolves around um, these days. Those are, the, those are the gods that our, our culture now offers to young people, and not just young people, but more broadly. Well, and that goes to the heart, perhaps, to my observation, too, that there is a tremendous sense of, I think, distorting of what had been the historical definition of the American dream, where for the longest time, certainly, I think, in the viewpoint of our founding fathers, it was about realizing freedom. And that freedom, of course, defined in many ways, freedom of association, certainly freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, critically important uh, in the founding days of this nation. And today, the American dream seems to be singularly defined as getting rich. Right. No, I think that that's a real distortion. You know, the, the, the motto for the state of New Hampshire is live free or die. It's not, you know, get rich. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm all, I mean, more is better than less. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I admire the people who are successful in business, and I certainly think immigrants have every reason to want to have a better life um, than their parents who came before them. So, so uh, in no sense, but but I, the American dream is that my, our destiny is not controlled by somebody else, by impersonal powers, and I'm not, I'm not destined, you know, to be, to be, um, to be poor. I'm not destined to, to be subordinated to people who are above me. Um, that that that's the sense of freedom, and and so we have to probe. We have to probe. Well, what is the source of freedom? in in our society what what gave those men the courage to stand up to their colonial masters what gave you know martin luther king jr the courage to stand up to jim crow um you know it's not it's not you know if there was no constitution when <laughs> when, the, when the revolutionary generation uh took up arms so it can't be the case that our freedom comes from government. Our freedom comes from the courage we have to stand up against those who claim to control our lives. Well, and, and, and does so not the declaration the itself tell us that, that we... Courage, you know, what's the source of that courage? And I think the source of that courage is a deeper loyalty. Um, and we say, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let somebody dictate to my family. I'm not going to let somebody dictate to my community or I'm not going to let somebody dictate to my church. And those deeper loyalties galvanize us, stiffen our spines. And that's the real source of freedom. And so in a, in a, in a way, freedom comes from conviction. 
That's really what St. Paul meant when he said that our freedom Christ had made it has set us free. Christ has set us free from the worldly powers uh, in and through our, our obedience to him, our faithfulness, our loyalty to him. Well, and certainly from a spiritual standpoint, we understand that our freedom, our spiritual freedom, comes from a source outside of us. It's not in anything of, our, of ourselves, but rather mm-hmm. what has been granted to us or provided to us by very God himself. And, I, and I'm reminded of that one passage in the Declaration of Independence where, and, and, and I think that the wording here is critically important, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's not that we have determined that these truths or we have assigned value to these truths, but in saying that we hold them, doesn't that give acknowledgement that the source of those truths comes from outside of us? I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And so in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to to find a right to same-sex marriage, um, I think it was Judge Moore in Alabama resisted. And I remember watching a TV show and a TV commentator said, well, Judge Moore, uh, you know, how can you think that our rights come from God? And he looked at this commentator and said, well, I mean, do you think that they come from men? And he said, well, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> if they come from men, they can be taken away by men. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do think it shows you how far gone we are in our society that we imagine that our freedoms are... That, they're, that they are consequences of the political process. But no, 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 no. The, our freedoms protect us from the political process, protect us from the tyranny and majority. Well, not protect only us. that, but I think, Doctor, also protect us from ourselves in the sense that historically we have understood that uh, freedom comes with a price and that with freedom there are codes of contact. There are boundaries, so to speak. There's accountability. There's responsibility. Uh, we've certainly historically exercised that sense of freedom within the confines of established boundaries. That's how we're able to get along within a civilized society. And it's when we redefine freedom to suggest it means no holds barred, do whatever you want, whatever feels good at whatever time without regard to, to uh, any sense of responsibility toward others or for self or a sense of accountability. That's when freedom really goes off the rails, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that I mean, I'm, as I as I think about this, I I think for the sort of postmodern culture, the post-Christian culture, freedom is the freedom to define the meaning of your own life. And you know what that effect has on most people? It disorients them. They wind up drifting through life. They wind up engaging in self-destructive behavior. Um, so. The culture of freedom, we, 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 have, we talk freedom all the time now in our society. Freedom to love whoever you want to love, et cetera, et cetera. But I look around me and I see, I see a lot of people in bondage to addiction, um, in bondage to dysfunction, criminality, um, even people who are, you know, get, you know, are able to break free from that are kind of afraid to go outside if they live in disadvantaged neighborhoods. So I, I see that this, this false cult of freedom, I call it a cult of freedom, uh, which is this misunderstood freedom as freedom to, to give meaning to your own life, that this, that this cult of freedom has actually sown a great deal of bondage. Well, isn't there also a slippery slope there, Doctor, in the sense that if we, if we exercise this boundless, I'll call it or limitless freedom to define our mm. own life, it's not that far of a step to suddenly then defining our own truth, and suddenly we, we find ourselves bogged down in the morass of, of nihilism, aren't we? Yeah, I think, you know, 
Nobody, very few people are nihilists in any explicit sense. But, but there is, I mean, I, I think we, we look at our political situation, there's a lot of unhappiness out there. And uh, we think about the economic causes, I think they're, you know, they should be brought into consideration, and, and there are other factors. But I would not underestimate the corrosive effect of this functional nihilism. Uh, you know, people, we are born to serve others. We're born to serve higher, higher power. We're born to serve, to, to worship God. And when we're denied opportunity for some higher, um, for some higher purpose in our life, uh, and we're, when we're condemned to a, a, an existence where we have to give our own life purpose, I can't see how that's not going to breed a lot of dissatisfaction in any society. And certainly that takes us down an additional dangerous path of moral relativism, situational ethics. You know, all of a sudden we find ourselves where there's no longer distinctives. There's no black or white. It's all just gray. And it's all up to your own private personal interpretation. So for one, murder is okay. For the other, it's not. And here we find ourselves. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation, a look at resurrecting the idea of a Christian society. How do we go about that process? We'll dive into that aspect of the conversation as our visit today with Dr. R.R. Reno continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is a song that was written back in the 1940s. I remember who the uh, composer was. Uh, that, that essentially talks about everything suddenly has been switched, meaning night is day and day is night and, and good is bad and bad is good. And that seems to be where we find ourselves today. Ironically enough, traditionally from the historic Judeo-Christian perspective from the Bible and the Torah, uh, we defined sin. We knew what sin was. Well, yesterday's old sin is now today's new norm. We have completely, to many levels, abandon the sense of a law of nature or certainly of nature's God, find ourselves embracing this entitlement to modern welfare state, and this is the trouble that we have now found ourselves in. The big question, of course, remains in a postmodern or post-Christian environment in which we live, how do we address what I'll simply call spiritual impoverishment? And come back to the sense of not only acknowledging the authority that of truth, but that truth even exists. This is part of the fascinating um, study inside the pages of this new book called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Its author is with us today, Dr. R.R. Reno. And, Doctor, what about that? I mean, to begin with, there's this argument we used to have to, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, share our faith in, in Jesus Christ. And now we find ourselves arguing whether or not God even exists. So how do we go about not only getting people around to acknowledging the authority of truth, but who that truth is, what the source of that truth is? I mean, certainly the first thing is to, we've got to be very sure we don't internalize a kind of attitude of self-censorship. You know, political correctness is a very powerful force that's, you know, running through our society, and there's always that danger of internalizing it and just kind of withdrawing or withholding. Uh, and so we, you know, you got to speak the truth in love. You know, you have to, you have to be winsome, charitable, and always recognizing the speck in your own eye. 
the beam in your own eye eye when we talk about the speck in another's eye. So, so, but, but still, we got to make sure. You know, if the the uh, uh, in the Muslim world, you know, the the non-Muslims are called dimmies, and scholars have talked about an attitude of dimitude, which is to internalize second-class citizenship. Uh, and I and I worry that that Christians in America today are going to internalize that kind of well, you know, second class. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't talk about that to my coworkers or people in the neighborhood and so on. Because um, in my experience, you know, people, there's a lot of dissatisfaction. And we've talked in this hour about how much dissatisfaction there is in our country, and. And you know, I, I've I, I've taken one of the things you're not supposed to talk about politics, you know, you know, right. And ever since the rise of Trump, you know, I I have you know because I'm I'm a journalist and a, you know try to think about what's going on in our society. So I started asking people, you know, ordinary people, people, you know, guys who pull the espresso shots, and you know, uh, here in New York, we only ride around in taxis, taxi drivers, and and all that sort of thing. And I ask people about their political views. You're going to vote for Trump. Who are you voting for? And um, people are tentative at first. You know, a lot at stake. These are, you know, this is about the future of our country. And but they really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about something that matters. Uh, how much more you ask people about uh, questions of faith? What do you, what do you believe in? And, you know, do you think there's life after death? And you know, do you believe in uh, that that God exists? And you'd be surprised the conversations you have with people and how appreciative, how appreciative they are. We all suffer in this regime of political correctness. Uh, a lot of people suffer, a lot more than we realize. It's not just us, religious believers who suffer, but folks who are, you know, folks who are maybe not, not so sure where they stand, but they want to be able to talk and think and they don't like being policed all the time. So I, I think that's the first step. Getting the conversation started, then critically important, acknowledging the fact that there's no such thing as a values vacuum, and we've we've often thought, well, if we can only be neutral about such matters so that we don't run the risk of offending somebody else, um, we, we don't want to take our belief system you know, any further than the tip of our nose, and yet this notion that somehow we can live together in peace and harmony in a values vacuum, which seems to be the direction in which we've headed, is, is completely false, is not well, what we we're, what we're seeing is that the supposed neutral secularism is in fact an ideology that compels us all to conform. Um, you know, uh, every society has norms, social censure, uh, but I, I just feel like when I was growing up longer ago than I would like to admit, uh, there there was more room to move. Um, there was more elbow room. And now in a society that's supposed to be, you know, diverse and open, there just seems to be a lot more penetrating, you know, uh, control over even people's thoughts. Um, I, I think that's natural, right? I mean, as a religious person, I recognize that all, the ultimate destiny of my life is beyond political but if you don't believe in something transcendent you can make a god at the political and that's what's happening in our secular society we make a god of the political 
which means that we ultimately are establishing a religion. It's called secular progressivism. Uh, whereas a Christian society recognizes that ultimate truths, ultimate, the ultimate destiny of every human person is above the affairs of men. And that lets us approach political life and our, our neighbors with a lot more generosity, a lot more tolerance, our capacity for compromise. Um, and and that's very much needed in our time, a sense that, look, the political is not the ultimate. The ultimate is is uh, is the transcendent. Well, not only, I think, Doctor, the capacity for compromise, but the capacity for compassion for one another. And, of course, that compassion and, and the understanding of the challenges or the plights of another has to come because there's some sort of moral order. Unfortunately, we find ourselves in moral disorder that has so completely flipped all the rules on their head that suddenly now we see crime, for example, is, is not a moral issue. It's suddenly simply a, an economic issue, that poverty is a, a economic issue, not a moral issue. Or, uh, you know, we've, we've got everything absolutely backwards. And sadly, the end game, the end result is where we find ourselves today. We are in the, the clutches now of a postmodern society that uh, that sadly is redefining everything, and in some cases saying, well, there are no defini- definitions, and so it's it's sort of up to uh, the, the the eye of the beholder, so to speak. And uh, as a result, it complete, com- creates this this environment of just complete utter chaos, not only at the economic level but at the political level and every other. The book is a fascinating read, and I think one that ought to be embraced by every Christian, every person who holds dear the sense of having a ultimate authority of truth that believes that moral relativism uh, or situational ethics is is highly disruptive to our society. We find ourselves in utter moral disorder because there are no mores. There's no foundation from which uh, we, we carry and comport ourselves. We've eliminated all the sense of of boundaries. Freedom just means doing whatever you want without any lack of accountability or responsibility whatsoever. And we've redefined the American dream to mean getting rich as opposed to the way our forefathers defined it. The book, I think, again, a critical read, particularly during this this time that we're all, I think, taking a moment to reconsider where we stand, where we think who we are as a people. The book, again, called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. It is written by Dr. R.R. Reno. You'll find it available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Amazon.com. You can get it through uh, Dr. Reno's website at firstthings.com. That's firstthings.com. And the book, of course, is published by Regnery Press, a media partner of the same fine folks who own this radio station. Our thanks to Dr. R.R. Reno for uh, an insightful and thoughtful conversation. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to turn corner and uh, deal with another topic, uh, one that, quite frankly, a lot of us rebel against, we, we struggle with. We've heard passages of Scripture regarding now the wives should submit themselves to their husbands, and of course we, we sometimes uh, uh, sort of recoil at that idea and, and then fail to recognize the second portion of that Scripture says that husbands should, should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and we know how Christ loved the church. He gave his very life for it. But this whole issue of learning how to submit and what submission means is something that a lot of us, quite frankly, struggle with. Uh, Certainly in our fallen condition, uh, the sense of wanting to rebel, not submit, seems to come more naturally. But at the end of the day, 
when we talk about being able to deepen our relationship with God, is it really about rebelling or is it about submitting? Joining me now, best-selling author, radio talk show host, his program, Road to Reality. He has authored over 200 books, some of which bestsellers selling more than 2 million copies. And he, of course, is the founder and international director of Gospel for Asia, Dr. K.P. Yohannan. And K.P., great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you. Good to be with you. Boy, this whole idea of submission, we kind of get uncomfortable with that idea, don't we? The, the idea of being able to kind of lay down to yield our our will to God, that's something that most of us just don't really cuddle up to. Yeah, you know, uh, when you think about it, anytime you, you hear the word submission or uh, surrender, naturally uh, our hearts um, go cold and uh, we don't we don't like to hear that and one of the reasons is you know the the, the abuse of leaders and authority and uh, you know husbands um, and I think um, we naturally resist that but the the truth of the matter is this that uh, someone who is truly following the Lord, um, they, 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 they want to please the Lord, and that also involves in um, embracing humility and submitting to authority, even when there are difficulties we have to deal with. You know, think about David, who absolutely uh, knew God, and God anointed him, and here he was in a difficult situation under King Saul, and David had every chance in the world, and of course, you know, he would be justified to kill Saul and um, uh, inherit what was already given to him by God. But he would not do that. He said, I cannot do it, and I cannot raise my hand against God's anointed, even when Saul was you know, uh, a man who walked away from God. And I think there, there needs to be a deeper understanding of godliness uh, by our absolute surrender to God and His ways. And uh, our problem in America or in the church, honestly, I do not think it is uh, huge abuse of authority. Rather, it is um, uh, people that uh, we, we do not want to uh, die to self and uh, be willing to uh, walk under the authority of God. It's interesting that you would single out David. Many of us would sort of regard him instantly as being this tremendous man of God. He's known as a man that has heart after God, a tremendous leader, and yet not really recognizing that perhaps one of his greatest attributes, one of his greatest strengths, was his ability to submit to God's authority. And, you know, trusting in God's sovereignty. You know, the scripture says in First John, someone says that, you know, I love God so much, the God that you cannot see, but then do not love those that he can see, the scripture says he is a liar or she is a liar. The truth is not in that person. So when we live on earth, uh, acknowledging God's sovereignty, you know, and, and trusting him uh, and, and submit to him, as long as the authority don't ask us to violate God's law and disobey God, and, uh, you know, uh, there are times, um, you know, I talk about that in the book, uh, when the authority asks us to violate God's word, we, we cannot uh, say, okay, I do whatever you tell me to do. Uh, but I, I really believe uh, when you have 65% divorce rate um, in our evangelical uh, homes, or 82% of the young people who grew up in Bible-believing churches leave the church when they leave home, and um, the broken families 
there has to be some explanation to this. And I think we are uh, 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 self-willed, arrogant, proud, stubborn people uh, that we will, mu- we, we will not give up and we'll fight. And um, uh, someone who wants to know God and be godly, I think Jesus lived in absolute submission to his father, which also reflected in his submission to his parents, who were not, you know, you know, angels. They were fallen people. How he lived, uh, obeying his father, which was reflected in his life on earth. And I think the Lord calls us to uh, follow him. Um, and I think Romans 13 very clearly talks about that. You know, I'm, uh, you know, not the one who promote that we go around and fight with everybody around us, but really the question is this, do we truly know the living God in our life, and is there godliness in us? That should be the reason um, why we surrender and obey and and live through this, and the scripture is full of illustrations to this. Uh, Let's go deeper. The point that you make, uh, KP, regarding arrogance and pride, and how that feeds into our culture, our society today, is, is part of the challenge here, in terms of understanding what it means to wholly submit to God. The notion that quite often we equate submission with weakness, and we think, well, I can't possibly submit because I don't want to be seen as being weak or vulnerable. No, you see, the thing is, when you study the scripture, um, you know, submission is not weakness. As a matter of fact, the, the, the text itself, when you read about it, talks about strength under control. Um, it is um, my choosing to say, you know, I, I, I yield my rights and I do not want to fight. And, you know, Joseph had every right, every uh, reason to accuse, to fight and malign and uh, do all kind of things against, uh, you know, the, his master and his wife and so on. But you never find him complaining, murmuring, uh, fighting. And um, the, the reality uh, is this, that in the body of Christ, uh, in the local church or in the home, because we never learned what it means to die to self and denying ourselves, uh, we want God. You know, it is like in America, you say you want the cake and eat it too. Um, it, it just don't work like that. And I think the message of the cross and dying to self and being broken and humble and being uh, not wolves but lambs following the Lord Jesus Christ um, is seen uh, in in the way we conduct ourselves in the society, in home, um, and things like that. I mean, think about it. Uh, our very culture in the United States, as you know, I mean, we were born out of rebellion in some ways, and from the uh, childhood we are taught you know, fight for yourself, um, defend yourself, and and uh, you have your rights and stand up for your rights. I'm not saying we should, you know, um, you know, agree with all the dumb things going on and just lay down and somebody, you know, wipe you out. No, I, I'm, I'm talking about people that read God's word and and trusting His sovereignty and willing to obey those. Um, that God placed over us, and that's what you know. Paul writing to the slaves, their masters many times abusing them, and he says, "You must obey your masters as unto the Lord." While Paul says to the masters, "You know, treat these people as your brothers." And Paul never promoted rebellion and fight, and uh, that is exactly what Lucifer did. Uh, he did not want to submit. 
uh, under authority and uh, angel became Satan and in all of us there is that seed of Lucifer by nature we are stubborn and rebellious people and so uh, we don't we don't want to experience suffering in the flesh which is the means we learn obedience and understand the ways of God. That's what the Bible says. Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and which translates into um, walking away from uh, our rights many times and, and, and follow instruction. And fascinating that we seem to take almost a, one extreme or another position. In other words, KP, we're either independent and strong, or we're submissive and we're weak, and yet look at the image that we see of Christ, presented as both the Lion of Judah, a tremendous symbol of strength, and overcoming the very gates of hell, and yet also depicted in the weakness of the Lamb that ultimately was slain on our behalf. And so we see it not as one extreme or another, but in this case, really uh, both. A look at Touching Godliness, a new book written by K.P. Yohannan, available, by the way, through Gospel for Asia. You can contact them online at gfa.org. That's gfa.org. He's authored over 200 books and a radio program syndicated on over 900 stations weekly. Dr. K.P. Yohannan, founder and international director of Gospel for Asia. K.P., is always a delight to have you with us on the program. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.